Thank you, Ivy. Good song. That's the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's me. I was lost, but thank God I'm found. All right, we're going to go to John 14. John 14. Pastor just read the text for us. I'm honored to be here. I had a great time with the men the last couple of days. We did the men's retreat about an hour and a half north of here up in Cleveland. And very good time. I, I enjoyed um, interacting with the guys, getting some basketball and dodgeball in. Uh, memories, it's been 10 years since I was here last. I'm grateful Pastor Sweat had me come a few times. His son Jeremy and I are very close friends. And then Pastor had me come starting in 08, and then was here in 08, 12, 13. And then I'm grateful to get to know the Savinskys. Brother Todd's father has uh, had a big influence on my life. I just surrendered a call specific call to evangelism, had traveled in 1987 doing an internship with Dr. Ron Comfort, and that's how I knew the Lord would call me to be an evangelist. And so that summer I went, um, our home church at the time was Emanuel Baptist in Mechanicsburg, PA, where the Savinskys would be later. And I went that summer as a um, sponsor for a group going to the wilds, and Dr. Savinsky was there, Jerry Savinsky. And so I just asked him a few questions, said, hey, I'm heading into evangelism, and you know, got any advice? He said, come hang out with our family. So I really enjoyed that and got to learn from him, get a burden. And so he was one of the men early on that God used to burden my heart for ministry. So I'm really honored that now to get a chance with the, the Savinsky family to, to just build a, a growing relationship. We share the same heart for evangelism. And I'm grateful for you making time to be in God's house. I was watching while some of the music was going on, some of the men that were at the retreat. And I think, yeah, we all are feeling it now. After the men's retreat, you know, some of those songs are like, ah, I'm ready for my nap. And then we had the clocks jump ahead last night. So I have all kinds of uh, opposition to deal with this morning. So don't worry, I'll do my part to be interesting. If you'll do your part to be engaged, I would love you to do that. All right, so maybe take out a pen, write some notes. I've entitled the message, Greater Works, and you'll see why it comes right out of the text. John 14, we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me give you some background where we're going. In 1857, New York City was in a time of spiritual crisis. I've got to think of myself, how often has New York City not been in time of spiritual crisis? But New York was uh, not a good place to be, and it happened that in the 1850s, rationalism had influenced the world, and there was a lot of skepticism and unbelief in churches, and weren't many people being saved in New York in the 1850s. But there were some churches that were preaching the word, one man was part of a small congregation that was dwindling. It was going down to a very small group, just a handful of people, mostly older folks. And that layman's name was Jeremiah Landfear. 1857, he was a member of a Dutch Reformed church that had been preaching the word. And they were not seeing people saved. And he went to his pastor and he said, you know, pastor, I'm afraid if, if we don't see God do a work, this church will be extinct within a generation. The pastor said, do you have any particular ideas? He said, well, I'd like to volunteer my services to be a, a missionary to our city. He said, I'll go out and I'll, I'll give the gospel. I'll give out gospel tracts and I'll engage people in conversation and I'll just, I'll just blanket the city and do what I can to reach people. So the church voted on it and they approved it. He went out as a missionary to the city of New York. And so for the first uh, few months, he went out, he knocked on doors, he engaged people in the streets, he gave out gospel tracts, and, and everywhere he went, as he tried to witness, he was finding opposition. He kept it up for a year. And imagine this, after 12 months of daily engagement of giving people the gospel, not one person had come to saving faith. I don't know about you, I, I might have thought, I think it's time to find another field of service. But he went back to the pastor, it's now 1858, and he said, Pastor, I, I don't know what to make of this. He said, uh, I'm not going to give up giving the gospel. I know the Lord wants us to tell people how to be saved. But he said, there, there's just this wall of opposition. He said, you know, I think, I think I've come to the conclusion that just like in human birth, if, if a woman's not healthy herself, she's really not in a position to give birth to a baby. Maybe we're not in a position to see people saved because we're not in good health spiritually. He said, Pastor, I think we need to seek God for revival. He said, could we hold a prayer meeting in church? He said, well, sure. Yeah, how, how do you propose to do it? He said, could we start a businessman's prayer meeting? 
And the idea was they would have a noon prayer meeting, a lunchtime prayer meeting, on Wednesdays. Did you know this is how the history of Wednesday prayer meetings got started in the United States? You all know why we meet on Sundays. It's the day the Lord rose again from the dead. Why do we meet on Wednesdays? That's a customary time for churches to have a prayer meeting. Well, that's not something directly from Scripture, but it came about through these Wednesday prayer meetings. So they planned, okay, the first date, they'll get together and they'll open the church doors at noon. And from noon to one o'clock, anybody who wants to come can come and pray. Well, Jeremiah got there, opened up the church and nobody came. And so he was waiting, and eventually a few people wandered in, and it was about a half a dozen people that first week, and they, they prayed, and God was doing a work. Well, the next week they met, and this time there were about 14 people, and they're just speak, uh, seeking God for the matter of revival. So they dismissed and said, we'll meet again next Wednesday. Well, the next week they had about 23, somewhere in that number, mid-20s, and uh, they said, you know, God's starting to do a work here. But we hate to lose the momentum and wait for another week. What, what if we started having daily businessmen's lunch prayer meetings? What if we go Monday through Friday, every business day? So they did that. Folks, it wasn't long before that church was so packed, they didn't have enough room to accommodate the people who were coming. And I mean, amazing things were happening. A, a woman had written from Canada. She said, I, I, I heard about these prayer meetings you're having in New York City. And she said, Listen, my, my son left home years ago. He does not know the Lord. I'm burdened for his soul. And would you please pray for my son? So they read this, and a fellow stood up in the back of the auditorium. He said, you know, I, I was wandering the streets here. He said, I'm in a terrible state. And I saw the little sandwich board sign outside telling that there was a prayer meeting here. And I came in, and I heard you read that request. And he said, you know, the irony is that the request that you just read is from my mother. Would you pray for me? I need to be saved. And he was saved in that prayer meeting. And all of a sudden, other churches in the area started following suit. They opened up their doors for prayer. In fact, businesses that weren't even Christian said, hey, we have lunch halls. Back then, people would gather in mass and have lunch in a big communal lunch area. They said, we've got lunch halls that you could use for the prayer meetings. Horace Greeley was the newspaper editor in New York City at the time. He was no friend of Christianity, by the way. He was an antagonist to Christianity, but he heard about this phenomenon going on, and, and he went to find out about the prayer revival, as it became known. And so he, he himself only got to 12 locations during the hour. He said there were literally dozens and dozens like this all over New York City. He said, I made it to 12 different locations, but in just those 12 localities, I, I estimated a, a, at least 6,000 people in just the 12 prayer meetings gathered to pray. And here's the amazing thing. One fellow had come from Omaha, Nebraska, all the way to New York City. And he said, as I came across the country, the northern tier of the United States, about 2,000 miles, he said, every village and town I came through has prayer meetings like this, bringing up all over the country. God was doing a work. As revival originated among God's people, here's what happened. There were 10,000 people a week professing salvation. 10,000 people a week coming to Christ. They said at the height of that revival, as many as 50,000 people in a single week came to saving faith. In fact, it's estimated that 1 million Americans came to Christ in a year's time. Have you ever seen a move of God like that? You know, it wasn't uh, too long ago, somebody asked me, have you, you heard about what's going on out there in Asbury University? I said, yeah, I've heard a little bit about it. What do you think of it? I said, I don't know a lot about it, but I will tell you this. When God begins to stir people, here, here's the evidence of whether the work is going to be indeed of God and whether it's going to last. What does it do in the aftermath, and what position does it put the person in in relation to the Word of God? The, the whole uh, emotional experience may be one thing, but where does, where does the movement stand when it comes to being rooted in God's word and submitted to God's truth and bearing witness with a change of life, a holy testimony? History will tell us what happens there. But I want to tell you something. God is not stingy when it comes to revival. God wants to do a work of revival. And oh, if we ever needed revival, it is now. In fact, I'll tell you something, 1858, in case you uh, remember history, you might be thinking, yeah, those were pretty turbulent times in our country. Yeah, turbulent, you think? What would happen in 1861? The country would be torn, uh, torn apart by a civil war. 
But many believe the reason America survived that time of when folks were talking about a national divorce, I don't think they were using that term, but how could we possibly stay united as a country? We have such divergent views on issues like slavery. How did America survive? It is truly believed historically it was because of a worker revival. Do we need a worker revival in our day? I don't think I need to answer that question for you. You know we need a worker revival. Do we see division, deep division in our country? You know we do. Does God change? He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Can God step down? Oh, he could. Yeah, why doesn't he? One of the principles we know from Scripture is you have not because you what? You ask not. And I want to tell you, if ever we needed to seek God earnestly for revival, it is now. Let's go back to the passage at hand. I'm glad Pastor read it. I normally take time to read verses 1 to 12. And here Jesus is telling disciples, look, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again. I'll receive you to myself. They said, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He said, you're looking at him. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man coming unto the Father but by me. Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father. That'll suffice. That'll suffice us. He says, look, Philip, have you, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You know, those who say Jesus never claimed to be God have not done an honest reading of the book of John. Repeatedly, he made claims that the Jews knew. He's saying, I am one with the Father. And he goes on to say, and let's jump ahead there in uh, verse number 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. You know, what, what do you think these miracles are about? They're to validate my claims Verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. That's where the title comes from today, greater works. But what does he mean? I've got to tell you, as I was in college and I was wrestling with that that expression from Jesus, greater works, if anybody humanly were to suggest to me that a Christian could do greater works than Jesus Christ, I would think that's sacrilege. That sounds That sounds blasphemous. But that's what Jesus said. Well, he didn't mean it. Of course he meant it. He wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. So what did he mean? Now go back. Verily, verily. When you see verily in the Bible, he just said in verse 6, I'm the truth. Verily means what? Truly, you know, verily. If you verify something, you check if it's true or not, right? Verification. Verily, verily. When you see verily in the Bible... That's like when we underline something, or we highlight it, or we put it in bold print. Don't miss this. This is really important. There's no fine print here. This is the big print stuff. This is the headlines. Don't miss this. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Interesting. So he says, not only if you believe on me, you'll do the works I do, but you'll do greater works than these. Uh, Okay. There was a lot to try to wrap your mind around here, a lot to try to comprehend. Let me illustrate it by using uh, the platform here. The word greater is a term of comparison. You remember being in school, you have good, better, and best, right? Okay? So greater is a comparative term. So I'm going to use this platform. This is where we want to get. We want to get to the greater works, but let's start down here on ground level. Because to get there, we've we got to make a little bit of a progression. If you want to take notes, we'll start with this. Number one... And um, typically, most people think religion, they think, oh, I've got to be good, right? So we're going to talk about works for a minute. And let me get my key word for it. Ah, the proper view, yeah. We're going to start with the proper view of works. The proper view of works. Now, a lot of people think, well, get to heaven, you know, I, I hope I'm good enough. You witness to people, you ever ask them, hey, if you were to die today, are you certain? Are you 100% sure that you go to heaven? You know what most people say? Well, I hope so. I'm working on it. Notice Jesus prefaces the remarks here saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. What do we call a person that believes on Jesus Christ? Yeah, a Christian. Okay, that was a term given in the book of Acts. It was really a derisive term at first. Oh, these little Christ. But what a term of, what a badge of distinction. Okay, you believe on me, you're a Christian. But what does it mean to believe on? By the way, the Bible uses the terms believe in and believe on. There's a little bit of a, a nuance of distinction. Let me see if I could explain it to you. Both are, are important in the idea of salvation. Let me use the chair here to illustrate. Um, 
if I sit on the chair, I, I've got to believe that the chair will hold me up. Okay, now I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'6", six, six, and I weigh, uh, I probably weigh about 240 right now. Okay, so that's a lot of weight. And when I sit on a chair, I always size it up because I have sat on a few flimsy little picnic chairs and it didn't go well for the chair, okay? So if I sit on a chair, now look, I'm going to pull my feet up and I'm demonstrating to you that this chair is holding up my 6'6", 240-pound frame. That's a pretty solid chair, right? I don't sit on a chair if I don't think it'll hold me up. To believe in Jesus Christ is to know truth intellectually. That's got to be... That's got to happen for salvation. To believe on him is then to place your dependence upon him, to put your trust upon him. Both are necessary. For, for a person to be saved, there's got to be knowledge, assent, and belief. Knowledge, you've got to know facts. Assent is you agree with the facts. And then belief is you put your trust in the facts. So you can grow up in church, you can know all about, oh yeah, Jesus died and was buried and rose again. But I want to tell you something. If you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't put your trust upon him, you're not saved. You've got to depend upon him. Let's go to the book of Romans. Um, very interesting. And put a marker there. We're going to come back to John. Romans chapter 3 for a minute. And I want to uh, go to some familiar verses. It's interesting when we, when we blitz neighborhoods and give out gospel literature. I know you did that recently. You know, we put hangers on doors. If we give out some gospel tracts, sometimes we'll give portions of scripture. And I'm, I'm going to be involved in a church plant back in Kansas City. Our pastor, Brian Schaefer, is establishing a church in Kansas City area up near the airport. And, and I'm going to be helping there and uh, looking forward to the, the starting of this church. One of the strategies is to blitz the area, go door to door. We'll talk to people. We'll leave literature. But one of the plans is, this is pretty typical with churches, we'll leave some portions of Scripture. And if you don't give a whole Bible to people or if you don't give a whole New Testament... What is common among evangelistic churches? What, what two books of the Bible do we often give out? Do you remember? John and Romans, yeah. Now, why those books? There are 66 books in the Bible. Well, John and Romans just so clearly give the plan of salvation. That's why it's not unusual that we, we give out John and Romans. Interesting, I'm preaching out of the book of John, and I'm taking you to Romans to illustrate some salvation truth, some gospel truth that we need to know. Look at Romans 3.10. Many of you know these verses. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. According to God, how many righteous people are there? None. Then he goes on to say, verse 12, they're all gone out of the way. In other words, they're out of bounds. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. In fact, the word unprofitable there reminds me of an Old Testament scripture. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Our righteousnesses are like what? Dirty old rags. When you change the oil and you, you wipe up the mess, what do you do with the oily rags? Throw them out. I mean, they're good for nothing, right? That's how God views our righteousness. Sometimes people think, well, hey, look, I'm a good person. Think of it this way. If as a high schooler, you grew up where you went to church every week and maybe you put money in the offering and then one day you go out with some friends and these guys are not, they're not good guys and they're, they're looking for trouble. And let's say the group goes in and you rob a convenience store and then you flee from the pursuing police and eventually you're apprehended. And uh, now this is the days when law and order were still in effect, okay? So you get apprehended and then you, you get taken to court. And the judge says, how do you plead? And you say, oh, I'm not guilty. Wait a minute. You robbed a convenience store. You were caught in the act. What, what if the person in defending himself says, well, look, judge, every week I go to church, I, I give money in the offering. Can you imagine the judge saying, you're not on trial here because of whether or not you gave in the offering or how much you gave in a church offering. You're on trial here because you broke the law. You robbed a convenience store. Listen, good deeds... Do not erase bad sins. And it is true in, in our world, good deeds done after the fact do not erase crimes committed. You don't get to heaven by being good. You can only get to heaven by being saved. In fact, keep going down to uh, verse number 20, if you will. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law has the power to show you that you're guilty, but it doesn't have power to save you from your guilt. The law was given by God to reveal his character and to expose our character. All have sinned. In fact, verse 23, go there. For all have sinned and come short of what? 
the glory of God. You and I are flawed. We are sinners against God. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to what? His own way. You say, well, I'm, I'm not a bad person. The Bible says that in the light of the law of God, every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be found guilty before God. You say, I'm not that a bad person. James 2 verse 10 says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. So you say, well, I'm not that bad. How about honor thy father and mother? How many times did you break that one growing up? How about thou shalt not bear false witness? Oh, I never lied. God says, let God be true and every man a liar. Guess what? You've lied. Lying does not have to be bold-faced statements. Sometimes it's just denial through body language. Who made this mess? You didn't say anything, but you lied. How about this? Jesus said, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. In fact, uh, John, was, first John says, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Jesus said, if you say to your brother, rock an empty one, you're guilty of, in danger of hellfire. Wow. You ever hate anybody? Murder doesn't start with the pulling of a trigger. It starts in the heart. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, etc. The problem is a corrupted heart. All of us are guilty. Okay, so the proper view of works is this. Our works cannot save us. Our works cannot save us. If you think you're going to get to heaven being good, listen, Jesus said concerning the day of judgment, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name, have cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Listen, folks, you don't get to heaven by what you do. You can only get to heaven through whom you knew. Did you know Jesus Christ as Savior? So the truth is, our works cannot save us. Only God's work can save us. Only God's work can save us. In fact, I jotted down Galatians 2.16. The Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, who was a Jew, trained at the feet of a, a rabbi named Gamaliel. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews by his own admission. He said this, knowing this, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Do you know that's called the road to Damascus experience? Remember, on the road to Damascus, going to persecute Christians, God literally blinded him with light, knocked him off his high horse, literally, and he said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He said, Lord, what, shalt thou, what wilt thou have me to do? He said, you go see Simon and he'll tell you what to do. You remember, the gospel was revealed to him. It's not by works. In fact, he was the one who wrote the words, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're going to turn to that passage in a minute. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul wrote those words by inspiration of God, but let me tell you, it was his own experience. He realized this, I can't save myself. You might go to church, you think, man, I, you know, I try to be engaged, I try to be good, I try to live the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life if you don't have Christ. He said in verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the what? He's the life. Without him, you can do nothing. You must be saved by him before you can ever live for him. So the truth of the matter is, our works can't save us. Only God's work can save us. In John 6, verses 28 and 29, some of the Jews asked Jesus, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? He said, this is the work of God. You believe on him whom he has sent. Your miracles won't get you to heaven. These people saying, we preached in your name, cast out demons in your name, we did miracles in your name. He said, I never knew you. Your work is to believe on Jesus Christ. That's the only work that can save you, the work of trust, the work of faith, the work of just dependence upon God alone. Because you see, it's really not a work. It's just God does it all and I receive it by grace. So our works do not save us. I wonder, have you been born again? Jesus in John 3 said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I, you say, I don't know what that means. Even the man to whom he was speaking, Nicodemus, said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He was the, he was the teaching, the leader of the teachers of, of Israel. And he didn't understand. If you don't understand, you're not alone, but I would beg you, 
do not leave here without understanding. Come to the Word of God and we'll show you. Talk to one of the pastoral staff. Talk to me. Let us show you. It's not by becoming a Baptist that you get to heaven. It's by being born again that you can get to heaven. You need Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you'll simply put your dependence upon Him, He's already provided everything necessary for you to be saved. So our works cannot save us. That's the first place. We start there, the proper view of works. But in our progression now, we move from ground level, okay, so the proper view of works here. But then, halfway up, number two, is the practice of good works. The practice of good works. You may say, you just spent all that time saying that our works can't save us. That's true. But when we're saved, we will practice good works. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. I quoted a minute ago, verses 8 and 9. Let me get another verse there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. All right, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, what? Good works, which God hath before ordained that ye should walk in them. That's interesting, the term workmanship comes from the Greek term, uh, Greek term poema. We get our English word poem from it. Okay, what's poetry? Poetry is verbal art. Now, I'm speaking to you in conversational language. We call that prose, P-R-O-S-E. Prose is conversational language. Poetry is, is like verbal artistry. Our hymns are based on the whole concept of poetry, okay? So workmanship, you're his work of art. You're his masterpiece. So how, how did you get saved? Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God the Father, he hath made him, Jesus, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So here's what happens. When you get saved, you come to the realization, I've got nothing to offer God. I'm a guilty sinner. So think of it. It'd be like uh, if I owed God a multi-million dollar debt. Let's put sin in monetary terms for a minute. If I owed God millions, well... (laughs) My name's Rich, but that's the extent of it. I don't, I'm not rich, okay? So I'm rich in name only, and maybe you are too. Well, the truth of the matter is, I could never pay off a multi-million dollar debt. I, I couldn't pay off my debt before God. So what happened is Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. When he was hanging on the cross, why, one of his statements was, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did he say that? For the only time in all of eternity, there was a severing of fellowship between the Father and the Son. Why? Because he literally became sin for us. He, he took on him the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He literally took, he literally became sin for us. So the Father judged him so he wouldn't have to judge me or you. But, but think of it this way. Let's go back to the monetary analogy. If Jesus took our sins upon him and he paid off our debt, that would put us at a zero balance. The, the books would be clear. But he didn't just do that. He gave us his righteousness. That's like putting us in the plus column to the multi-millions. That's what justification is. When God sees me, he sees what Jesus Christ did for me. Not only did he pay off my sin debt, he puts to my account his righteousness. And so, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No, I, I can't say, oh, I'm a good person. No, Jesus is good. He saved me. He made me good. I would be a wretch without him, but I am a saint because of him. That's what salvation is. We're his workmanship now. We're his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So notice our text now in John 14. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that believeth on me. Okay, that's the proper view of works. I have to believe on him to be saved. He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Okay, now here's the practice of good works. You believe on me, the works I do, you'll do also. Now you and I typically think in terms of miracles. Jesus gave sight to the blind. He cleansed lepers. He made lame people to walk. But is that what he's talking about? I I love the description in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. We read this about Jesus. He went about doing good. What was his character like? What was his normal day-to-day like? You know, Jesus wasn't always healing, wasn't always doing miracles. Oh, yeah, he did a lot of teaching, too. What What was it like in the hours between teaching and traveling? And Well, let me give you some things that are true about Jesus. And we're talking about the practice of good works. 
What kind of things did Jesus do in his daily life? Well, for one, he prayed. Hey, he prayed. Let me give you a few references. Mark 1.35, in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out, departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. John 20, I'm sorry, Luke 22, 39 says this of Jesus. When he was in Jerusalem, he, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he was wont, W-O-N-T, that as was his custom, his habit, as he was wont and there prayed. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he'd go out to the Mount of Olives, and that was his prayer spot. Point being, Jesus prayed all the time. Jesus made time to pray. Do you? I find that incredibly convicting. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made time to pray, if he saw the need to pray, what about me? I may quote this again this week. It's one of my favorite quotes on prayer outside of biblical accounts itself. A man named Owen Carr said this, A day without prayer is a boast against God. That's worth remembering. A day without prayer is a boast against God. What do you and I say to God when we're not praying? Thanks, Lord, but I'll handle this today. If we're not praying, we're just saying, I got it. Jesus lived his life in complete dependence upon the Father. It's the height of presumption if you and I don't pray. He prayed, do you? Not only that, he meditated on Scripture. He meditated on Scripture. Now that's interesting. I knew that to be the case. How did I know that to be the case? Well, Psalm 1, verses uh, 2 and 3 says this, His delight, the man of God, His delight is in the law of the Lord. In His law doth He meditate day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever He doeth shall prosper. I mean, that's typifying the godly man. So I knew that had to be true of Jesus. It's interesting. I don't read specifically where, you know, Jesus went out and he sat by the creek or by the river and he opened up the scroll. I, I, I wondered, okay, can I say with authority that Jesus meditated on Scripture? Well, I absolutely can. Well, how do I know that? Well, let me give you one thought. Luke 2.52, when Jesus was 12 years old and he went to the to temple with his parents during one of the feasts, says Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, stature. Like height, okay? He grew. Um, when I was a kid, I, my dad's six foot seven. He's with the Lord now. I, I have never been the tallest guy in my family, believe it or not. I'm six six. So uh, my dad was six seven. Well, I was uh, five foot four when I was in sixth grade. I was six feet tall in seventh grade. I grew eight inches that one year. And then I was 6'6 six, six by 10th grade. So I grew 14 inches between 7th and 10th grade. I was eating my parents out of house and home. Um, and, but, you know, there was no question. I was growing. We kept the marks on the wall, right? When Jesus was a kid, you know, people would have said, oh, wow, he's really grown. He, I mean, he did not come into the world a full-grown human. I'm, I'm sure Mother Mary was grateful for that, right? Do you, do you know this? Jesus did not come into the world speaking full sentences. Hello, Mary. Hello, Joseph. Yes, I'm your baby, but I'm here to be your savior. I mean, can you imagine? He didn't, he didn't come into the world speaking full sentences. Imagine this. He had to learn the language that he himself created. That's a thought, isn't it? You know, I want to suggest to you that he didn't come into the world spouting off Bible verses either. Well, how did he get them in his mind? He went through the tedious task of memorizing Scripture just like you and I need to. You put any scripture in your mind, memorize it. That's the key to meditating on scripture. I, I'm really grateful for men that had a profound influence on my life to memorize scripture. Dr. Ron Comfort was the first. Tom Farrell, Jerry Savinsky, John Getch. Many evangelists I know have made a hallmark of their ministry of putting scripture to memory because they know that you have no authority to preach if you're not preaching the Word of God. But I'll tell you, that's not only true for me in what I do as a living, that's true for me in just the way I live. Every Christian needs to memorize Scripture and meditate on Scripture. Jesus made time to memorize and meditate on Scripture. Let me ask you, do you? But not only that, he prayed, he meditated on Scripture, but then also he served others. He served others. Many of you know the passage, Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. 
He said, you know that the kings of the Gentiles exercise authority over them, and they that are great exercise dominion upon them, but it, it should not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I saw a uh, headline this week uh, talking about a guy who has a nationally recognized ministry, and they were critiquing this man because he, he flies a private jet, and, and uh, the headline was, what would Jesus fly? You know, commercial or coach or what? I got to think about it. Well, you know, in Jesus' day, the, the royalty got carried around by these caravans borne by people where they, were, they would be toted on people's shoulders. Not Jesus. How did he get around? He walked. Now, I'm not suggesting if you fly private that, boy, you're a sinner. You're not like Jesus. What would Jesus fly? That made me laugh, but, but it did make me think. And, you know, it made me admire the Lord all, all the more. He didn't come ordering, uh, I'm going to stay in five-star hotels and I'm going to have limo service. And No, he just walked like regular people do. Uh, he served others. I was convicted, sitting in my easy chair. It's my favorite place in our trailer. We have you know, 400 square feet we live in. I, I got this lazy boy that just fits when we bring the slide outs in. So during the week, I turn it where I can prop up my legs up. I mean, my idea is if your legs aren't up, you're not really resting, right? So, but it's funny, legs up, eyes closed. So, uh, so I'll prop my legs up sometime, get kind of drowsy, and then my daughters will walk by. I've got three daughters, one's now married, but I've got three daughters, and I'll say, hey, Lene, could you hand me this? And Heather, could you give me that? And sometimes they'll say, Dad, are your legs broken? And yeah, good point, because I am just, I'm more than happy to take advantage of servants around me, Right? Isn't it amazing? We are very natural in looking out for self, but it's not very natural to look out for others' needs, is it? Jesus was constantly looking to meet the needs of others. He served others. I wonder, do you? Not only that, he prayed, he meditated on Scripture, he served others, but then he shared the gospel. He witnessed. I mentioned Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. All you've got to go through the Gospels and you'll see Jesus went about all the cities and villages preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Everywhere he went, he's looking for opportunities to tell people about the Lord. I heard one preacher say, I go out every day on soul patrol. I'm looking for somebody to tell. Hey, yeah, Jesus witnessed, do you? But what a convicting thought. The works I do, you'll do also. I've only mentioned four. I mean, the list could be infinite, but, you know, he prayed, he meditated, he, uh, on Scripture, he, he served others, he witnessed. If I just gave an invitation right now, that would be more than convicting, wouldn't it? But there's one last point I want you to see, and we'll finish here, is number three, the pursuit of greater works. The pursuit of greater works. Okay, so just to get the foundation here, we started down level here, the proper view of works. Our works can't save us. Only God's work can save us. And then we move here, and that's the practice of good works. And, and we ought to be Christ-like as we grow. But you know, what he said was in John 14, 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Okay, here's what's going to happen. He that believeth on me, the works that I do, he'll do also, and greater works than these shall he do. What in the world does he mean? Did he mean that we would do miraculous things? Well, the apostles had that privilege, but you know, that, that was only until the Bible was completed as a canon, as a, as a um, collection, a library of books. And, and after that which is perfect has come, the, the final revelation of God, then prophecy and tongues, etc. would be done away. Those were sign gifts and they were no longer necessary when the complete canon came along. We're not, we're not promised to do all the miracles. Well, so did he mean it or not? Well, I got thinking of this. What, we always want to think of the sensational. That's what draws us. But Jesus performed miracles to be able to prove that he was God, to demonstrate that he was God. But what does he mean, greater works? Well, let me ask you. What, what do you think is the most important work of ministry? Go ye into all the world and What? Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Okay, now the baptism isn't what saves you. That's how you identify with them. But you believe you're saved. The gospel is foremost because people need to come to Christ. So I thought, how great it works. 
What does he mean? In Jesus' day, he typically led people to salvation one at a time. I'm thinking about, um, he spoke to the woman at the well. She comes to saving faith. Prior to that, he spoke to Nicodemus. In John 8, you have the woman taken in adultery. So typically, he's dealing with people individually. He's preaching to masses, but he's seeing folks saved individually. Even uh, Luke chapter 17, you have the 10 lepers that come to Jesus. But remember, only one of them came back to give thanks, and he says, Thy faith hath made thee whole. He spoke to masses, but he dealt with people individually. But let me tell you, something happened at Pentecost, all that changed. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, who just weeks before had cursed and sworn and denied the Lord, suddenly Peter stands up with boldness and preaches. And how many people came to saving faith and then were baptized and added to that church? 3,000. And we'll look into that in detail this week. And later on, a few, few days, few weeks after that, whatever, G, G, uh, Peter's preaching in the temple and another 5,000 men come to saving faith. And we'll see that this week. And here's the point. All of a sudden, greater works are being done. How? Jot this down. The pursuit of greater works. First of all, the scope of this promise What's the scope? The scope is like the parameters of. What are the boundaries of this promise? Well, notice he that believeth on me. This wasn't just to Peter, Andrew, James, John. It wasn't just to the original 12 disciples. This promise is to all in the New Testament era who believe on Jesus Christ. New Testament believers. This promise is to you individually. He that believes on me, the works I do, he'll do also. This This is for rich. This is for you. This is for every one of us. I wrote down John 15, 1 through 8. I won't take time to quote that. I quoted part of it earlier. But as you abide in him, you bear much fruit. How many Christians uh, do you know that's true of? Well, it should be. There's the scope of the promise, but then also there is B, the basis for the promise. The basis for the promise. So back to John 14, 12. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because... Because what? Because I go where? To my Father. What's that mean? Let me ask you, what significant event happened when Jesus ascended back to the Father? The Holy Spirit filled the church. Acts 1 verse 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Romans 8, 8, the Lord said, with, um, sorry, Paul said, They that are in the flesh cannot please God. And then he says in verse 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Who enables us to please God? It is the Spirit of God who comes into us. I preached to the men at the men's retreat on Ephesians 5, being filled with the Spirit. We have the indwelling Spirit, and then we have the interpersonal relationships that are transformed by his work. It is the Spirit of Christ who transforms the believer. He is Christ in us You'll receive power. What happened? Jeremiah Lanfear had gone out. He knocked on doors. He witnessed to people for an entire year. Nobody got saved. The next year, tens of thousands got saved. What changed? It was God working in the hearts of people. You see, revival must begin at the house of God. When revival came to God's people, then awakening came to lost people. He said, that's pretty awesome historically. Look, is America in a mess right now? We all agree it is. What's the answer? Well, Christ is the answer. The answer is out there. Why is it not being believed? Why is he not being believed? Folks, it's no different than New York City in 1857. It's no different than a country that was ready for a national divorce. It's no different than a country that was steeped in in agnosticism and atheism. That was going on in the 1850s. But revival came. And let me tell you, the promise of greater works is the work of God doing the effort in the heart of man that man cannot do himself. When God works in hearts, there is fruit born that is impossible by human standards, but it is possible because of God's ability. The Spirit of God. You will receive power. You'll do greater works because I go to my Father. Look at John 16, verse 7. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him unto you. Capital C, Comforter, who is that? The Holy Spirit. That's clear from the book of John. The Comforter is the advocate, the the one called alongside, the enabler. Look, the Holy Spirit is, Ian Thomas said, the person of Christ's other self. He said, lo, I'm with you always, and then he ascended back to heaven. What, What did he mean? 
I'll send you another comforter. One means identical in character, nature, kind. He is the person of my other self. He's the, the third person of the Godhead. I, the second person of the Godhead, am ascending back to the first person of the Godhead. But you will have the third person of the Godhead. And I, I hate to use terms one, two, and three because neither is subservient to the other. But that's how we wrap our minds around it. The Spirit of God comes into you, and it's He that imparts the life of Christ to you. And it's He who can bear fruit through you. But I wonder, are we seeing it? I have to tell you, as I wrestled through this text of Scripture, I thought, I know I believe it, but I can't even begin to claim that I've touched but the hem of the garment of this thing. So I wonder, do you believe the Word of God? You all would tell me, yes, I believe the Bible. Do you believe what Jesus said when he said, uh, you'll do greater works? Well, yeah, he said it. Do you understand it? I just preached to you, I don't know if I fully comprehend it yet. And I've been wrestling with this for years, but I will tell you what. He means it. He wants it. And its reality has been borne out every time there's a work of revival among God's people that results in a work of awakening among lost people. Folks, it is the need of the hour. Whatever happens in Asbury and Cedarville and other places, time will tell where that comes out in the scope of revival history. But I want to tell you something. Instead of just sitting back and critiquing and thinking, well, I don't know this is the work of God. Look, let's not have that spirit. Let's have the spirit of this. God, we know we need revival. What do you want to do at Berean? What do you want to do in my heart? And let's look to God for greater works. Would you stand with me? I want to give you an invitation as we finish up. You've listened really well, and I appreciate it. Such a, such a rich passage of Scripture, such, such wealth in this Scripture. Let's not just easily dismiss it. Here's what I'll do in the invitation. I'm going to talk through what I'm asking of you, and I've, if anybody does not know Christ as Savior, I'm going to invite them to be saved. But let me explain why I still give old-fashioned, come-down-the-aisle invitations. It is built on one particular principle. Book of James tells us, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to whom? The humble. And the word humble has the idea of bowing the knee and lowering oneself in the presence of another. We don't do enough of that in our world. That's one reason old-fashioned invitations were established. It's a chance to humble yourself before God. Man, there is so much room at these steps up here. There's typically room at these front pews because hardly anybody sits up there, right? What a spot to be able to come and kneel before God. I want to invite you to do that this week. If God is dealing with you specifically, it's so easy just to do the casual. Yep, yeah, I needed that. But, but you know, God says his grace is dispensed when we humble ourselves. Would you be willing to step out of the pew and kneel before God and say, Lord, I need this. I don't even know if I fully understand but I sense this need in my heart. Teach me to understand. You remember if you were in Sunday school, we talked about being good ground. They hear the word, they understand the word, and they bear fruit from the word. Maybe now is a time you need to come. Let's bow our heads. I want to ask you a few questions. How many of you can say, thank God, there was a day in my life that I came to believe on Jesus Christ. I didn't just believe in him with my mind. I trusted him with my heart. I, I depended upon him from my soul. You know, I, it's not anything I do that saves me. I realize that. But it's, it's just putting my dependence upon the gift of God. How many of you would say, yes, Jesus Christ has become my personal Savior. I've been saved directly through him. Would you lift your hand if you know that? You say, I've trusted him. He's my personal Savior. I thank God I know that. Okay, so many hands. Before I move on to those who do not know Christ, you may put your hands down. Let me ask you this. Those of you who just raised your hand, as I spoke about the works that Jesus did, we'll do also. Anybody here convicted? I'm not asking you to raise a hand. I just want you to think right now. How many of you, when we talked about he, he prayed, how many of you say, God convicted me, I, I need to develop a regular habit of praying. I need, I need a, a really consistent prayer life. Anybody need that? Would you now lift your hand? You said, I needed that. I'm, I'm hearing that. I needed that. Okay, we talked about meditating on Scripture and memorizing and, and mulling it over, chewing the cut of truth. How many of you would say, I was convicted by the need for a regular quiet time? Anybody, that's your need? Would you let me know? Raise a hand. I, I needed that. God worked with me about that. Yeah. 
How many of you, like me, were convicted about the thought of serving? It's so natural to look after my own needs, but it's so supernatural to really look after others. I needed that. Would you lift your hand? Serving others. I need God to help me learn to serve. And how about the witnessing? Anybody here, you say, boy, I needed the reminder that Jesus was constantly going about telling others the good news. And I really want to ask God for boldness and opportunity. And that just that I'll do it. Who needed that? You said, I needed that prompt on witnessing. Yeah. Just there, we'd have pretty powerful invitation. But, but the thrust for you and me today was, it's beyond that. It's the greater works. Let me ask you this. How many of you would say, you know, as you're preaching that, that just really resonated with my heart. I know that the Christian life is more than just going to church and read the Bible and you know, kind of check off the list kind of things. It's about a vibrant walk with God, but it is about bearing fruit. It is about the capacity to bear much fruit, and I feel so inept. You know, as you're preaching that text, I, I felt the Spirit of God bearing witness with my own spirit. Rich, I want to see God really open up my eyes to this. I want to see God do a work of teaching me, of bringing me to the reality of greater works. Who, who needed that? Would you lift your hand? You said, I'm, I heard that. I need that. I want God to do such a work, and I don't even know what I'm asking. Yeah, that's good. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond. One last thing before we close. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you ever trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? You say, I don't think I have. When you asked it, I couldn't raise my hand. Let me say it this way. Are you absolutely certain you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, no, I'm not absolutely certain. I mean, I'm trying. See, that's the problem. You don't get to heaven by working on it. You get to heaven by trusting the one who did the work for you. Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins. His blood was the price. The crucifixion was the agonizing exchange. And then he rose again to secure the purchase price that his resurrection assures your salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who here would say, preacher, I really don't know that I'm going to heaven. I, I, I don't have any assurance that God's taken away my sin. I'm concerned about my soul. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. Would you pray for me? Would you quietly hold up your hand? I won't embarrass you, but you say, that's my need. Is there anybody like that? I don't know that I'd go to heaven when I die. I don't know that I've ever been forgiven, but I sense that need. Is there anybody like that? Anybody at all? I'm, I'm trying to shield my eye from the lights. If you're not sure of this, what I would do is invite you. We've got men scattered across the front here. They're on the staff here, the pastoral staff. They would love to open up the Bible and show you how to trust Christ as Savior. And I'd urge you to do that. Here's what I'll ask. Going to have our pianist play, and as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'd ask you to respond. If God dealt with you about a specific, would you come? So she'll begin to play. There's room at the steps here. There's room at the pew. Would you come now? We'll just take a moment or two. I'll have her play through just a couple of stanzas, and then we'll go. But the opportunity of invitation is to say, Lord, I acknowledge that I've, I've heard a need addressed here, and I know this, I won't make any lasting change by a mere decision of the will. A decision is just a starting place. But I'll tell you this, desires without decisions are just wishful thinking. Desires without decisions are just wishful thinking. One of my dear friends, Phil Phillips, says that all the time, and I, I've picked it up. It's so true. You won't change if you don't decide. So we've been through one verse, we'll go through another, and then I'm going to turn it back to Pastor. He may continue it. If you need to come, would you do it right now?